1978, Congressman Leo Ryan went on a fact-finding mission to Jonestown in Guyana to investigate allegations of human rights abuses, and his delegation, they went down and, and they spent some time uh, overnight there uh, with uh, an NBC camera crew, uh, some members of, uh, family members of the People's Temple there, uh, and led by, of course, Jim Jones. They arrived on the 15th of November, and then um, a few days later, actually, uh, they were leaving after Ryan had been attacked uh, with a knife by one of the members there, uh, People's Temple members. They went to leave only to be hunted down at the airport by members of that, that cult, and many of them shot and killed. Soon after that, later that same day, uh, 900 people, 909 to be exact, were led by their teacher, their pastor, so to speak, to commit mass suicide, adults and children. Now, what would lead a group of people to do that? Well, it began with something very simple, and that's false teaching. Someone who took advantage of their position and taught something they knew to be incorrect or twisted the truth enough, uh, slowly but surely over time, to get individuals to buy into what they were teaching. And that's an extreme example, right? I mean, that, we know those examples. Uh, cult followings who are led to do things that you would never imagine, and they would have never imagined. But slowly, slowly but surely over time, they get to that point. Uh, that's the danger of false teaching, is that, you know, when you begin to leave out certain things or begin to redefine truth or begin to take what you like and leave what you don't or deny it altogether, it will lead to major things, major immorality, major problems in your life or in the church. And, and that's what we want to look at today. That, that was an extreme example, but we see various forms of false teaching in our culture today and in our churches today. And so we need to be able to identify it and, and been, because it's, it's warned against in God's Word, but specifically in our series and the letter we're looking at today to the church at Pergamum, that was the problem that they had. That's the issue that they're facing. Like the rest of the churches, they all have some good things that they've been doing, uh, but they are one of the churches, one of the five churches that receive a rebuke, and the, the rebuke they receive is because false teaching is going on, and they're allowing it to go on in the church. Thankfully, though, Jesus anticipates this problem, and he anticipated all of the problems that he addresses in these letters, and he does just that. He addresses them and shows us, shows these churches, these were real churches in that day and time, but we, as the church of today, can identify with many of of these things. It's representative uh, message to all the churches for all ages. We can see from these letters how to address this problem. Jesus anticipates the issue and shows us how to deal with it. We're in this series called Seven, Jesus' Message to the Churches. We're looking at each of these letters and what we can learn from them. Uh, two of the seven churches receive praise and encouragement, no rebuke, Five of the seven churches receive a rebuke. There's praise and encouragement, but there's also a rebuke. And, and again, Pergamum's one of those churches. What's the purpose of our series? Let's review real quickly. The purpose of this series is that we need to know who we are and what we are to do as the people of God. Uh, if we don't know who we are, the, 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 the 
contrary, or the, the result of that is if we don't know who we are, the result is, is that we're going to try all sorts of things to be effective, any and everything to be effective, and that just leads to all kinds of confusion. We need to know who we are. We need to have a foundation. We've talked about our mission. We've talked about our vision. We've talked about our strategy for accomplishing those things, but all of that has to be built on the right foundation. And in these letters, we find out what that is. Jesus lays out in addressing each of these issues and, and praising the churches that are doing well. He, he lays the foundation for us, and we can discover what we are to be about. We know whose we are. We should know who we are. Our identity is in Christ, but we can also know what we are to be about as a church. Jesus writes this letter to the church in Pergamum, and we find it in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. So if you haven't turned there already, turn there in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're just going to walk through these verses together, all right? We'll read these verses together, and then we'll look at a little bit of background on this church. In verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum, the one who has the sharp double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, And you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you, where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone and on the stone a new name as inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, again, a little background here. Uh, Pergamon was different than the other cities. Uh, it was a royal city. The other cities we see mentioned in Revelation, they were unique in that they were a royal city. Uh, it had been the capital of that region of the world for over 400 years. It sat on a, a cone-shaped hill uh, about 1,000 feet high. I mean, it was, it was a unique city and, and more than uh, the fact that it was a royal city. Uh, The name Pergamum actually means citadel, and some historians have called it the most distinguished city in Asia. It had a Greek culture and was known for two things. One was that it was known for having a large number number of temples, a lot of idol worship going on here. They have that in common with some of the other churches, uh, the cities uh, that we've talked about. Uh, A lot of idol worship, had several temples. The other thing was their library. They were known for their library, uh, second only possibly to the, the library in Alexandria, Egypt. To give you an idea of the importance of libraries during this day and time, we, it's nothing for us to pay, for, for in our culture today, to pay a quarterback, an NFL quarterback, over $50 million in a contract, right? I mean, that's nothing, I mean, nowadays. That's probably small. I don't, I don't keep up with it, but I know that uh, it's more than that. Um, well, librarians were paid the equivalent of that in this day and time. That's how important they were. Uh, libraries were, were vastly important. And this library was famous uh, for its collection. 
Uh, as a matter of fact, this city is where uh, papyrus was invented. And, and of course, uh, 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 parch- parchment, rather. I'm sorry, parchment was invented. And if you know, our Declaration of Independence, of course, is written on that. But this, uh, they get credit for that. I mean, they, you know, uh, they, they were unique in and of themselves uh, for several reasons. And this is one of those, one of those examples. Um, so Jesus in the context of this city, congratulates this church for a couple of things. It's not all bad. As with most of these churches, it's not all bad. He congratulates them for their endurance in the faith, right? If you look, he says, you did not, he said, you remain true, verse 13. You did not deny my faith. Uh, Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So Antipas had been martyred, and even in the face of that, they still remained faithful. They didn't deny their faith. In other words, uh, there were there were other issues, but this was not you know they they endured. They did not deny Christ. So their issue is not that they're denying Christ altogether. They're still claiming Christ. Okay, there was a problem though, and the problem Jesus says, "I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Rome was Satan's throne in the west. Pergamum is Satan's throne in the east. It became a Roman city in about 133 BC." And the church at Pergamum absolutely had a problem, and that problem was false teaching. They had allowed these different teachings of these different uh, uh, worship, these, these different gods, to you know, these practices to creep into the church. And, and this, is, this, this is the problem that they have. And we, we see false teaching everywhere. You know, we think of those extreme examples, but, but think about the other ways the truth is bent. Are we, the things that we accept or the ways that we try to practice culture when it, when it contradicts God's way of living. We see false teaching everywhere. Um, we all know those sad extreme stories of people being led to do extreme things like suicide, but cults are not the only organizations being filled with this. Uh, a lot of churches are adopting principles and beliefs. And you're not going to hear me stand up here and bash churches all day. Okay, That's not what I'm going to do. But, but the challenge for us is that we need to make sure that we are teaching and living by the Word of God and making sure we're not compromising that in what we teach and in how we live. That's the challenge for us. There's some actions we need to take, we can take. Jesus lays out the problem, and in that we can see some actions they needed to take and that we need to take in order to avoid the dangers of false teaching. The first is that we need to accept the truth about false teaching. We don't need to deny that it exists, and we need to know what it is. There are realities. What is false teaching? Well, false teaching challenges Scripture, and its simplest definition is, is anything that challenges Scripture, that's contradictory to Scripture. That's what false teaching does. Jesus is clear about the consequences of this in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I testify to everyone who hears the prophetic words of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. So there's your consequence, number one. Number two, in verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of this prophetic book, God will take away his share of the tree of life and the holy city written in this book. Jesus is very clear about how he feels about false teaching and what the consequences of that is, about adding to or taking away from his word. Uh, It is the complete uh, inerrant word of God. And when you add to or take away, there are serious consequences. And that's one of the things that false teaching does. It either adds to or it leaves things out, important things. And false teaching also blurs the truth. It will acknowledge the truth in a sense, but distort it. 
And, and listen, guys like Jim Jones are masters at this. They, they know how to, and of course, Satan is the ultimate deceiver. We see him doing that in, in the Garden of Eden, right? Did God really say, don't eat the fruit? You know, I mean, you know, just allowing, allowing just enough of the truth to, to, to get your attention, but then blurring it or bending it or twisting it into something that's completely different. It's deception, plain and simple. You know, it's the kernel of truth, but it's distorted to the point to where it, it's, it's anything other than truth is false. The false teacher has an end goal in mind, and he is going to take whatever path he can to distort the truth to get you to follow him to that end goal. There's something he wants. There's something that, that he benefits, some way that he benefits. And, and so he's going he's gonna to use whatever, the, whatever methods he can to distort the truth. Uh, a little story, the devil was walking along with one of his cohorts. They saw a man ahead of him bend down and pick up something shiny. And so the cohort asked the devil, what was that? And he said, amen, he found a piece of the truth. And the cohort was like, hey, doesn't that bother you? Don't you want him to, to, to put that back down? And it's a piece of the truth. Don't you want him to put that back down? And the devil said, no, he can take that and create a whole new religion. Just a piece of the truth. It's not the whole truth, which is actually not the truth. I mean, truth is truth, but, you know, just taking a little kernel. We've seen time and time again people take just enough and twist it and bend it and deform it to the point to it becomes unrecognizable, but that's all it takes. Uh, Partial truth or truth taken out of context can be so very damaging, twisted. That's the basis of many false religions. Uh, the result is that we don't have any understanding of right and wrong. I mean, you know, we either have just a fraction or we don't really know truly what's right and wrong. And culture reflects that. Our lives reflect that. And when we do encounter truth, we either accept part of it or we don't accept it at all. Um, or, or we take what we like and we leave what we don't like. I mean, there, there's all kinds of responses, but we don't have a true understanding of truth. Many people just leave it alone altogether. Winston Churchill once said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened because they don't know. I mean, we don't have a concept or we just deny it altogether because it's inconvenient for us. We don't like what it requires of us. Uh, how we need to adjust our lives to align with the truth. And, and that, that's a common response. And be that as it may, it places those who respond in that way on the pathway to destruction. Those people in the people's temple didn't pl- start out planning on committing mass suicide. They were led there one step at a time, one compromise at a time. That's what happens. What starts as a small compromise ends in destruction. And that's the path that the church at Pergamum is on. And Jesus is warning them, you're headed for destruction. You're headed for problems. Um, though, you know, you cannot, cannot, there's no way to love God and follow God and deny the truth. You can't separate those two things because God is the truth. You can't pick and choose and say that you love God with all your heart. You either accept him and what he says is right and wrong, or you don't accept him at all. There's no middle ground there. And those who try, there's, they're headed for destruction. False teaching challenges, it denies, it distorts biblical truth. What else does it do? It also opposes the heart and reality of who God is. He is truth. But think about it. You know, false teaching is going to deny 
many forms will deny that God is the one and only true God. I mean, listen, I'll even go as far as to say that if you decide you want to pick and choose your truth, you're denying God because you're putting yourself in his spot and defining truth. Um, False teaching at its simplest form denies that God alone is God because he has defined what is right and wrong. It also is going to deny Jesus as Lord, the Son of God, the only way to heaven. The most popular form of false teaching today is that there are many paths to God, right? There are many different avenues to get to heaven, but Jesus himself said, he denied, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. So if you accept the idea, the belief that there are many paths to God, you're denying Jesus is who he said he is. You're denying he is the only Savior. False teaching is good to deny God. It opposes the heart and reality of who God is. So now we know at least the basics of what false teaching is. We need to make sure we understand what false teaching is not because here's another area where churches go too far. False teaching is denying scripture, is changing scripture, is denying God, anything that promotes that, but false teaching is not a difference or a change in methods, how we do things. There are a lot of people that think, you know, if you change a tradition or a method and how you reach somebody or how you disciple somebody or whatever, that you're, that's false teaching. No, there are a lot of churches today I've, I've maybe bashed them a little bit. Listen, there are a lot of cutting-edge churches today that are reaching people that other churches are not, and they're not compromising the gospel. They're not teaching false teaching. They're doing things different, and they're being labeled as false teachers unfairly. They're advancing the kingdom of God, and we should be for them and with them instead of bashing them. I tell you, Christians, we are some of the best at shooting our own, at wounding our own, and it's, it's unnerving. Um, And so there are a lot of churches out there being labeled with that unfairly. Just because we do things different than we did 20 years ago does not mean we're taking Scripture and changing it. I mean, how we reach the lost. You know, there are going to be things, especially after a pandemic, that we're going to need to do different than we used to, or we're not going to reach anybody. I mean, we've got to be willing to change our methods. You know, Paul talked a lot about this. He addressed this in 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 23. He said, to the Jews, I became like a Jew. To win, Jews, to, to win the Jews, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law. To those who are without the law, I became like one without the law, not being without God's law, but within Christ's law, to win those without the law. To the weak, I became weak in order to win the weak. I've become all things to all people so that I may, by every possible means, save some. Now, I do all this because of the gospel, so I may become a partner in its beliefs. Now, did Paul compromise the gospel by becoming all things to all people? No, because he wouldn't have received that crown of righteousness. He wouldn't have been able to get to the end of his life and say, I've finished the race. I've done what I was called to do faithfully. No, he changed his methods. He didn't change the message. He didn't change the heart of the gospel. He didn't change the word of God. He he accurately and responsibly and faithfully delivered the word of God. He just, when he was with a different group, he knew the methods he used with the Jews was not going to work with the Gentiles. So he changed his methods, and we need to be willing to do the same. That is not false teaching. I mean, I've been a part of, uh, of many different ways this applies, right? I mean, you know, from recreation ministry to, um, you know, to, to missions in China. I mean, there are different things that work in different cultures, uh, you're not changing the message, you're changing uh, the, the, uh, the method. 
There are also methods we use to disciple believers, and that's going to change depending on the age of the person, where they are in life, what their background is, where they are spiritually. You've got to meet people where they are. That's also what Paul's talking about. He became all things to all people. He met them where they were so that he could disciple them where they needed to be. He didn't compromise, but he got on their level. He spoke to them on their level. He, he taught them where they were spiritually and their growth, and we need to be willing to do the same. That is not... That is not false teaching. Materials, teaching styles, learning styles, uh, one-on-one versus small groups, different methods for different people in different circumstances. So now that we understand what false teaching is and what it's not, let's look at uh, we, we need to, how we need to appreciate the dangers of false teaching. That's the second action, the second reality we need to, to come to uh, because it is very dangerous. That's why Jesus is addressing this. Um, Put, put simply, false teaching results in a sinful lifestyle. I mean, that's, you know, if you just want to, you know, bare bones, simple terms, that's where you're headed. I mean, you don't intend to go there, but you will. You're going to end up in a sinful lifestyle that includes immorality, specifically sexual immorality is mentioned here in verse 14. But, I mean, immorality is any sinful behavior. It is evil, sinful, or otherwise wrong behavior. I mean, that, anything that's contrary to God's way of living, what he instructs us to do and how he instructs us to live, that's immorality. And that, you know, false teaching is going to lead to that because you're not going to know right and wrong, or you're only going to know part of what's right, and you're inevitably going to live in a way that does, does not honor God. So immorality. Also, it includes compromise. And this is, you know, of course, where, kind of where you begin, right? You begin with compromise. You know, think about Satan's tactic here. His first his first tactic was a, a, a full frontal assault, right? I mean, if I can martyr some of these believers, then I can convince the rest of the church to deny Jesus, or at least to, uh, to, to run and, and, and hide, to run with their tails tucked. That's his first. So Antipas, he, we read about Antipas being martyred, and Jesus praises them because they see that, yet they do not deny Christ. So that's his first attempt, right? That doesn't work. He doesn't get the church to run and hide. So what does he do? Well, he pulls out an oldie but a goodie. He just kind of comes in through the back door. And he says, okay, don't deny Jesus. You confess him all you want. You go to church on Sunday. You do all of those things publicly. You confess Christ. But then during the week, you live like the rest of the culture. It's okay. You adopt these practices and beliefs. You accept things that you know are wrong. Do that during the week, confess Jesus on Sunday, and you'll be fine. That's what they fall for. That's what's happening. They're they're not denying Christ. They're confessing Christ. They're doing some good things in the church. But it's, it's, it's really just a facade. Because in their lives, if you were to follow them every hour of every day of every week, you would see great inconsistencies in their life. Makes me ask, if someone were to follow me around, us around what would they see do we really believe what we say we believe on sunday are we living it every day of the week because that's where this church has gone wrong they they are claiming christ to be followers of christ and they're not that's what satan does and the the rest of the week they're not he says you know you know i'm not gonna you know he he knows that we're not gonna say i don't believe in jesus he knows that all right we're gonna say that all day long But what he also knows, he knows there's a good chance that he could get you to accept a few things you know are not right. 
you know, a little white lie here, or, you know, accepting something, a belief as, as being okay when you know it's not right. Um, something in our culture that you know compromises Scripture, that you're willing to accept, um, you know, claiming to follow Christ while engaging in immorality in any form. And that's exactly what this church had done. It's called compromise, plain and simple. False teaching leads to compromise. And here's a word of warning. Beware. We all need to beware. Compromise leads to more and more compromise. Before you know it, it spins out of control. Your sin ends up controlling you. Compromise leads to more. Because Satan's not going to be satisfied with just one area of your life that you allow him to, to gain entrance to. All he needs is his foot in the door. He's the greatest salesman there ever was. He can sell sin like nobody and convince you it's the right path. Not only that, it, that it's okay to accept a little bit that's wrong, he can eventually convince you that that sinful action is the right thing to do. And your, your beliefs are so distorted. Again, we, we end not knowing what's right and wrong. We can be guilty of compromise when we say, I'm not going to deny, deny Jesus, but I'm going to accept these little things, whatever it is. But then we end up buying into the ethics, the values of the culture, the habits of our culture. And what we end up doing, what they are doing, is they're trying to ride the fence. You've heard that phrase, right? Riding the fence. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means you're trying to go in two different directions. Riding the fence is an attempt to be in two places at once. It's an attempt to be two different people at the same time. That's not possible. You know what that's called? That's called hypocrisy. It's being a hypocrite. And we all are to some degree, right? None of us are perfect, all right? But if I intentionally try to live dual lives, then I'm riding the fence. And that's going to lead, eventually it'll tear you apart. <laughs> you will, your, your life's going to be a mess. The church at Pergamum wanted Christianity without commitment. They wanted redemption without repentance. They wanted spirituality without sacrifice. They wanted deliverance without determination. They wanted rewards without the responsibility. And they wanted life without lordship. They did not truly want Jesus to be lord of their lives, to call the shots, to direct and lead their lives. They would not submit. So they made Christianity conform to the culture instead of allowing Jesus to conform them from the inside out. Instead of allowing him to work through them to conform their culture to Christianity. They were compromising. They had compromised, and that's a danger. A loss of truth is another danger of false teaching. You know, in the culture that we live in, a lack of truth is unfortunately kind of a defining characteristic. Nobody really knows. I was willing to define truth for fear of offending somebody. You know, we, we take and we pick and we choose. You know, and this isn't new. This has been going on, developing for years. There was a study that Barna did five years after the September the 11th attacks. Let me tell you why they did this study then. After September the 11th, 2001, there was pretty much a universal condemnation in our country that the acts that took place that day were evil which would lead one to believe that we in America have an absolute standard of what's right and what's wrong, because we agreed on that. Well, five years after the attack, Barna did a survey. They did a study, and they found that that was not, in fact, the case, that, there, that, that Americans do, do not hold to an absolute standard of right and wrong, something outside of myself, not me, something outside of myself that defines what's right and wrong. They found, they did two surveys, one among adults, one among teenagers. And they said that by margin, a three-to-one margin, adults said they believe the truth always depends on the person and the situation they're in. 
In other words, it changes depending on who you are and where you are, what you're faced with. The teenagers, teens, 83% of teens said that, that it's dependent upon your circumstances. You get to define what's right for you based on who you are, where you are in life, the circumstances you're faced with. They, they asked people to indicate the basis on which they made their moral and ethical choices. And the most common answer was doing whatever feels right or comfortable in that particular situation. So I guess if you make me feel mad and I feel like killing you, that's okay. Based on that definition. But that, that's, listen, that's where, we're, that's where we were five years after. 2006, that's where we were, Okay. And here, here was the conclusion they came to. They said the result of this is a mentality that values pluralism, relativism, tolerance, and diversity without actually considering the implications of the actions or viewpoints we hold. Fifteen years ago, they state that a failure to address this issue at its root will undermine the strength of the church for at least another generation, perhaps longer. So were they right? Let's fast forward 15 years. Another study. They asked the question, what has happened to truth? Past generations, they say, look to an outside source, namely the Bible, to define what's right and wrong. That, that we, we were at least willing to admit that there was a standard, that we didn't have what it took to determine what was right and wrong. But a new study just came out, conducted last year, came out recently, from the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University showed that 58% of Americans no longer believe that, that that is the case. There's an absolute standard of right and wrong and instead say that it's up to the individual to decide what's true or, or moral. Here's the shocking thing. That number includes people who claim to be born-again Christians. And there's really no difference inside and outside the church. Inside the church, people who claim Jesus say the same thing. You can define truth based on your situation and who you are. Whatever's right for you, whatever feels right, and whatever's right in that moment. Evangelicals, defined as those believing the Bible to be true. The true, now these are people who will say that it's the true, reliable word of God, okay? But of those individuals, 46% reject moral, absolute truth. So either we're lying or we don't really believe it. In the church now, half of the church, born-again followers of Christ, they claim to be, say there is no such thing as an absolute objective standard of truth. That's where we are. Only 43% of those surveyed that identify as, moral, as, as followers of Christ still actually embrace the truth. Uh, it's a sad reality in some form. I mean, it's a sad reality. That's where false teaching, that's the end result. That's where we are right now. We are, in many areas, in many places, the church at Pergamum. We've accepted the culture. We've swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. And, and, and we're headed for disaster. False teaching also results with division in the church. I mean, look at Pergamum. You, are, you have people, verse 14, uh, who hold to the teaching of Balaam. You also have people who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. There's division in the church. You've got people going all kinds of directions in that church. There's division in the church. And I've seen that repeated over and over again. I'll never forget, Mandy and I, we were, um, it was only a, a couple of years into my first pastor. We were at a bed and breakfast in Natchez, Mississippi. And we got, struck up a conversation with a family. And I won't mention the de denomination. It wasn't 
the Southern Baptist denomination was another denomination, and they were struggling. Their family was struggling because their church had recently, this particular denomination had split in a more liberal versus conservative path, and their particular church that they had been members of their whole lives, their families had been members of their whole, you know, generations had been in this church. They were struggling because they knew they had to leave that church that they loved because that church decided to go in a direction that was contrary to Scripture. And you could see the pain on their faces and hear it in their voices because they were having to make this decision, but they knew it was the right thing to do. We see it over and over and over again. The church at Pergamum has repeated itself generation after generation after generation. False teaching leads to all sorts of problems in the church, and it takes many forms. Now that we know the forms it takes, the consequences it brings, we need to avoid the the, the trap of false teaching. Can we all agree on that? We need to avoid falling into this trap. Um, Jesus' message in the midst of all of this, the message he sent to the church at Pergamon, the message he's sending to us today, Wall Highway Baptist Church in Madison, Alabama, the message he's sending us is do not straddle the fence, do not compromise in your habits, in your lifestyle, in your attitudes, your thoughts, your actions. Do not compromise. You've seen the result. You've seen where it's going. You've seen the the dangers. So do not compromise. He sends a word of warning. Look at verse 16 to the church at Pergamum. He said, therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, who's he fighting against? The enemy of the church? No, he's fighting against the people within the church that are straddling the fence. He said, if you don't repent, I'm coming after you. This is my bride. Now, those of us who love our brides, is there anything we wouldn't do to protect them, to protect their dignity, to make sure they were safe, to protect their purity? I mean, if we who are imperfect love our wives that much, think of what Jesus will do to protect his bride. He's saying, I'm coming for you. If you don't change, there are going to be consequences, bad consequences. He said, I'm going to fight you with the sword of my mouth. That's an interesting phrase. We see this in Revelation 19 also. God created the the earth. Remember how he created the worlds? With the spoken word. This is talking about his power, his majesty. He spoke the worlds into existence. And Jesus also speaks faithfulness into us. Right? Jesus says, to Pergamum, in essence, I'm going to take the sword of my mouth, a symbol of my authority and my power, and I'm going to bring judgment upon you because you cannot live with a foot in both worlds. You can't do it. You're disgracing my name. You're disgracing my bride. He won't allow it. And Jesus says, here's the, here's the right response. He says, repent. What does that mean? Remember, repentance is talking about recognition, redirection, and reorientation. Recognizing sin redirecting my life toward Christ and reorienting my life around him. He has to be the center. It has to be his way. Whatever he says is right and wrong. Whichever direction he tells me to go, recognition, redirection, and reorientation. That's what he's saying. You got to turn it around and put me in the center. That's what he's calling the church at Pergamum to do. And we need to build our lives around what God identifies as, as the most important, what he says is right and wrong, even if we don't understand it. Even if we can't understand why it's important or why or, or we don't think it makes sense in our culture, we have to submit and make him truly Lord of our lives and follow his direction for our lives. And this involves 
you know, reorn, re- repenting, reorienting, redirecting my life, but also committing to the study and memorization of this book. You know, the, the Holy Bible, it is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. It is the revelation of God to us. It's been put this way. The Bible consists of 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. Each one is inspired without error and is completely accurate in all things it addresses. The entire Bible, though written by many people over thousands of years, is in total harmony in all of its teachings. That's no mistake. It's not just coincidence. The reason that's the case is because it's inspired by God himself, the Holy Spirit. Yes, men recorded it, but the Holy Spirit worked through them, inspired them to record it. It's perfect. And we need to to commit to making this remarkable book from God. We need to make it our, not just our instruction book for life, but, but we need to take it in to feed on it and allow God to transform us by his word from the inside out. When we do that, we will know what's right and wrong. We will live according to what's right and wrong. We need to be able to say, just as the psalmist did, Psalm 119.11, I've treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. You want to know right and wrong? you got to know this. you got to feed on it, memorize it, meditate on it. Not just cursory readings, devotional readings, but meditating on it. Another way we avoid the trap of false teaching is that we need to make sure we don't get caught up in arguments over the unknowable. There's a lot in this book that I do not know and do not understand. And guess what? I'm completely at peace. Maybe I'm simple-minded, and that's okay. I've been called worse. I'm completely at peace with going to my grave knowing there are going to be things in this book that I don't understand until I get to heaven. But listen, we're going through Revelation on Wednesday nights right now. We're, it's kind of a partner study with this through the churches. And this will be the third or the fourth time I've talked through it. And every time I think I've got a grasp on it, and then somebody asks me some question out of left field, and I realize I don't have a clue what I'm talking about with that particular subject. There's so much there. It's so deep. And why would we expect anything else from the mind of our Creator? Would we want anything else? Would we want to be able to know everything that he knows? We wouldn't need him if that were the case. I'm okay with believing I can sleep well at night knowing that God knows more than I do. And that that's always going to be the case. Now, as long as I'm alive, the more I grow, the more he's going to reveal to me. And I love that. Every time I come to a book like Revelation, I learn a little bit more. A little bit more. But there are going to be some things that we don't understand. And one of the mistakes that churches make, that Christians make, is they make that dividing lines. They draw lines in the sand over things that are peripheral in terms of theology. Things that we're not meant to understand completely, that we're supposed to accept by faith. That's why it's called faith. Believing in something you can't exactly see. And and sometimes that's hard to do. But we've got to accept some things that don't necessarily make sense in our minds because we don't have the mind of God. We've got to come to terms with that. And we can either cause division and argue over things that that I believe grieve the Holy Spirit when we do so, or we can cause division in the church. We can come to peace with it, or we can cause division. One one or the other. We've got to major on the majors. We're not talking about compromise. We're not talking about compromising Scripture, adding to, taking away. We're talking about accepting some things that we may not be able to understand completely. Also, we need to... Be guided by the Holy Spirit. If we're going to avoid this trap, we've got to be led, guided by the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, Jesus said, 
He promised, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name. He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've told you. He's speaking to his followers, the disciples, but, but that we now have the Holy Spirit. And he, the, part of his function is to counsel us on what's right and wrong, to show us what's right and wrong. As we go through this book that is so complex, that is so deep, to give us understanding so we know how to apply it to our lives. That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. He shows us the truth. He helps us identify false teaching as a result, right? You know, how do these people get led, led astray? Many of them don't have a good foundation to begin with. One of the ways you're going to be able to identify whether or not what I'm saying is accurate or whether or not I'm a crazy man is if you know this yourself, and the only way you're going to know it is if you, the Holy Spirit reveals it to you. You have to know Christ, and he will show you the truth. Any teacher, for that matter, we are called to judge what's right and wrong in terms of what we're being taught. We are held accountable for what we do with God's Word, and we need to allow the Holy Spirit to show us. And as He does, He will help us identify what's right and wrong. And finally, we need to continue in perseverance. You know, there are going to be times in your life, throughout your life, where Satan is going to tempt you to compromise. And once you get over that temptation... Don't think it's all smooth sailing from here on out, okay? I have found that especially in major turning points in my life, when God's calling me to something greater, something bigger, those are also the most vulnerable times in my life. I need to be on guard because Satan is going to tempt me. He's going, he knows my weaknesses just like a boxer studies his opponent and knows where to strike. He knows where to hit me where it hurts. He knows my weaknesses. And so I have to be on guard. I have to be careful. I've got to know the truth. I've got to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And listen, I'd love to stand before you here today and say I've never compromised a day in my life. I've always been perfect in this. But no, there have been those times where I have fallen short and I suffered the consequences. And I don't ever want to be there again. And that you don't want to be there either. We have to be guided by the Spirit. We have to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us. We have to stay with it. You know, part of this is endurance. I mean, when Paul got through, one of the things he was celebrating is, hey, I finished by the power of God. Yes, not in his own strength, but he's just celebrating the fact that he made it. He endured to the end, and now he knows what's in store for him. As we attempt to persevere in life, we, have, we must devote ourselves to be obedient children of God. We must study the Scripture, be discipled. Don't ever get to a point in your life where you think you've arrived. Be teachable. And disciple new believers. I've learned more from discipling people probably than I've learned from being discipled. Because there's responsibility, there's accountability that comes with that in that way. We disciple new believers as we grow closer to God. And with all the other letters, that's the challenge. With all the other letters, Jesus ends with a word of hope. I'm thankful that he does that. Even for a church like Pergamum, there's hope. Verse 17, he says, Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden man. I will also give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, of course, they immediately would have thought about manna from heaven. They would have been familiar with the Israelites, the Exodus, manna from heaven. They would have thought about that, but that's not all of what, what, what uh, Jesus is referring to here. This wasn't just in remembrance of what had happened. What he's talking about here is, is the bread of life, the secret manna. I will give Victor some of the hidden manna. In other words, they get to know Jesus, the Messiah. He's, he's offering himself. Jesus said, I am the bread of life, John six thirty five. He's saying, I will give you me. If you will be faithful, I'll give you myself. But then he talks about, 
He says, you know, if you repent, if you turn, you'll have myself. But then he talks about, I will give him, him a white stone. And on a stone, on this stone, a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who perceives it. Now, this is a little bit contextual, okay? They would have understood this because in this day and time, a little white stone would be given. You know how you go to the, the carnival and you get a little ticket? That's what this was. If you were invited to a banquet and, and not everybody was included, you would be given a little white stone. All right, and so that was your ticket to get into the banquet. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm going to invite you to become a part of my family, a part of my banquet. You're, you're invited to the banquet. I'm going to give you a pass, an admission ticket. You're going to be able uh, to come to my banquet. And you want to know what that banquet's about? We're going to, on Wednesday nights, when we go through the book of Revelation, we're going to find out what that's all about. Just read ahead a little bit, okay? He's saying, here's what he's saying to the church. If you remain faithful, if you are truly mine, if you live the life I've called you to live, I'm going to reward you with myself, and I'm going to reward you with a seat at my table. You get invited to the banquet. You get to attend with me as my special guest. Your ticket has already been punched. You know, we can be there too, not just the church at Pergamon. The same promise is true for us, but we have to be able to focus on Jesus, to hold on to his truth, and to live by his truth. Now, Gracie's going to help me illustrate that this morning because she's my child, and at least at this point, she still does what I say. <laughs> she always does. I don't have to force her. All right, so here, here's how false teaching works, okay? We've got to be able to, to identify the truth, to hold on to the truth, and to not let go. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves in a mess, all right? That's, that's you know, a quick summary of, of the message this morning. But how do people get wrapped up into the false teaching in the first place? Well, it doesn't start with, you know, 909 people committing suicide together. It starts with a little compromise. And, you know, as followers of Christ, that's easy enough to identify. Put your hands together like this, all right? So I'm going to tie Gracie here, put it on there, all right? Now, she's got one untruth or false truth in her life. We can see that, right? Everybody can see what that is. And it's pretty easy to get out of that. Just break free, 